welcome to season two of the mixtape with Scott. Uh, I'm the host, Scott Cunningham. Uh, uh, today, I have the pleasure of uh, uh, introducing you to one of my one of my oldest friends uh, in the profession, Melanie Goldie, uh, an associate professor of economics at University of Central Florida. Melanie is um, uh, graduated around the same time as me. I don't know if we came out at the exact same time. She may have been. I came out in 07. I have a feeling we were on the market together or maybe off by one year. Um, we sort of worked in similar areas uh, of health. It was like I was interested in sexual behavior. She was interested in fertility. And so we, and then sometimes it would be more similar than that. Issues about contraception. She's been a uh, steady, insightful, uh, reliable, you know, empirical, excellent empirical microeconomist from whom I've learned a whole lot. I've discussed even one of her papers in my uh, my book, Causal Inference, the Mixtape. Um, in this interview, we kind of cover a lot of ground. Uh, we talk about her life, uh, just like all the other interviews. We talk about her life growing up, how she got into economics and how she kind of migrated into the topics that she studies. But towards the end, we start talking about her own research into uh, fertility, un unwanted unintended fertility, which uh, as she started sharing with me the, the, the kinds of questions that she had to use to study that, I was stunned by what a complicated question it was. I don't know why uh, I had always taken for granted what unintended births meant um, until listening to her talk about sorting through some of these questions. And I realized it was very complicated to figure out what exactly we meant and what we didn't mean. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do too. Um, I want to, before I, before I move into it, just kind of remind you the, the purpose of the mixtape, the purpose of the, the, the mixtape with Scott is to introduce you to people that I, I like, and I'm interested in learn their stories uh, because I'm of the firm opinion that we need in economics to hear the stories of other economists. Um, to just try to make sense of the profession, try to make sense of our own part in it, and uh, just to get to know each other a little better. So I hope that this uh, interview is is uh, as interesting to you as it was to me. Kylie, encourage you to uh, read some of Melanie's work after you listen to it. Thanks a lot. Well, it is uh, really my, one of my, a pleasure to have one of my oldest professional, one of my oldest friends in the profession, uh, Melanie Goldie here on uh, the podcast. Melanie, thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time to be on the podcast. Sure, it's a pleasure. For the sake of the listener, could you tell me, tell us, your, you already, I said your name, but could you say your name, uh, you know, where you, you know, what your job is and, and who your employer is? Sure. Uh, my name is Melanie Goldie, and I'm at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. And my current position is Associate Professor of Economics. Cool. All right. How long have we known each other? Um, I was thinking about this this morning. Um, we have known each other, I believe, since 2007. Yep. That's what I think, too. That's what I was thinking, too. I think too. we met at the Southerns in Charleston. So yeah, that's right. Check that. That's right. I have, I actually was going to reference it a little bit. Okay, cool. All right. So as an icebreaker, 
what's a vacation that you took as a kid, good or bad, that to this day you think about it every now and then? Doesn't have to be your favorite one, but it's one that you think yeah. about every now and then. So we took a lot of family vacations um, to visit family that lives in um, New York or in Chicago. Um, and I guess there's one experience on one of these trips that really stood with me, which was we went to a swimming hole in New York and I was absolutely not going in this water because it was scary. And then I was forced to go in the water. And for whatever <laughs> reason, just, I remember that really distinctly. Yeah. Was it deep water or was it cold water? Um, I think it was cold and it was a little rocky um, mm. to get into the shore. I was born yeah. in, in Florida and I was used to having flat sandy beaches and warm Atlantic water. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's funny how uh, I grew up going to the beaches in uh, Florida too. And like, uh, anytime you go to any other kind of beach, you can just tell all the subtle things that are really different, it, just even with sand or, or the temperature and all this stuff. And it's a completely different experience. Um, and so you grew up, so you, you grew up in Orlando. Did you say you grew up in Orlando? No, I, I grew up in a couple of different areas of Florida. So um, I grew up on an island. Um, in northern Florida, north of Jacksonville, and um, for about half the time. And then I grew up closer to the Daytona Beach area. Mm. And we also spent a couple of years in Puerto Rico. Oh, wow. What'd your parents do for a living? Um, my dad was an air traffic controller until um, Reagan fired a bunch of air traffic controllers. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought you say. <laughs> And then he was, he was into more entrepreneurial, um, type of jobs after that. Yeah. That and must've been pretty devastating. Um, I was still pretty young at the time. So I think my parents insulated us somewhat. Um, was that pretty devastating for him though? Yeah, I think so. I mean, in some ways, like he's, I think the classic kind of make lemonade out of lemons and, mm. I don't, I think he's very happy at this point that he was fired because it put him on a different trajectory that, um, he ended up enjoying a lot more. So mm -hmm. what did he know, end up doing? Um, he got into, uh, real estate and then he got into, um, mortgage lending mm. and then he ended up working in, um, more commercial lending at a bank. Mm. Okay. Through, through about the Great Recession, um, which is, I guess, around the time he would have been retirement age. So, mm. yeah. And now, and now he teaches um, people how to fly. He's a certified flight instructor. So. Oh wow. wow. <laughs> That's awesome. So, what about your mom? What'd she do for a living? Uh, she was a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. Yeah. So, are you close with? Or, so do you have any siblings? Five. Five siblings. Five. Mm -hmm. Are they? Are 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 any of them uh, multiples? No. No. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just curious. All right. So, if if I could talk to your teachers in middle school, how would some of them have described you? Just like you know, random. Like they're just observing you, and they've they've watched you for a year, and they are like talking to each other in the teachers' lounge. And and what would they say? You know, Melanie Goldie's like this. Uh, I'm not sure. Not sure. You don't know what people's impressions. Are. I was I, I was in a couple different middle schools, and 
I don't know. I just kind of was there. Yeah. Yeah. You sort of, you were kind of quiet. Oh, super quiet. Oh, okay. No, I definitely was not a loud student at all. Mm. The whole time mm. K through 12. Okay. What was your, what was your friendship group like? Small. Yeah. You had some, some close friends though. Yeah. Yeah. Just what, a couple you... close friends that I'm still friends with today. So. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, what was your interests in high school? I was busy all the time. I took a lot of classes. I worked about 20 hours a week and I was in clubs and I was on a couple sports. What sports did you play? I played like everything once. Um, I went to a small high school, so you didn't actually have to have any talent to be on a team. (laughs) I mean, like, for example, I did swimming and I just swam whatever event they didn't have someone filling a lane. Like I had no talent whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, like, we have to forfeit if Melanie, if you don't show up right now. More or less, we need as many players on the field. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Oh man. So did you like your high school? Did you like your high school experience? Um, Yeah, I mean, it was fine. I kind of, I went to one place for ninth grade and I went to a different place for 10 through 12. Mm. So was that starting over kind of hard? It was, I have a really weird hodgepodge of, you know, having grown up in two locations, but even within the location, I was in two different kind of school systems. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went back and forth between parochial school and public school. Mm. Um, And so I don't know, for example, I went to public school in ninth grade and eighth grade, seventh grade, I was in one parochial school, which is a feeder to the high school that I ended up going to. So I knew a couple of people, mm-hmm. um, but it was still a super small high school. So some of these people had been in school together since like pre-K. Mm-hmm. Were your siblings some of your closest relationships or were your friendships and some of your closest relationships? Um, I, I think maybe a little of both. Mm-hmm. So I have a sister a couple of years younger than me and she's probably the person I was closest with growing up. Mm-hmm. So what kind of, cl- what kind of class, what kind of uh, subjects did you sort of notice you both liked and or were good at? My sister and I? No, no, uh, like classes. Oh, that I liked in school? Yeah, that you liked oh. and or were good at. So I think I liked math from the beginning because um, when I was in preschool and kindergarten age, we lived in Puerto Rico. Mm. So I learned all the early language, early literacy was all in Spanish. Mm -hmm. So when we came back to the States for first grade, all the numbers looked the same, but all the letters sounded different. So I thought (laughs) that was easier to think think through math oh sure right I don't know though naturally I'm not sure I'm super talented at math Mm -hmm. Um, but it's I like it yeah brilliant at it but yeah so then you uh so so when you were about to graduate high school what kind of future did you sort of envision for yourself that you kind of aspirationally were were hoping to have um I don't know. I think when I went to college, I wanted to 
be an engineer and I was thinking of working on solar cells. That was kind of my goal. Mm. Um, but when I went to some of the pre-engineering classes, I, I didn't like the, it's going to sound funny, but I didn't like that it was so kind of cutthroat and male dominated. Mm -hmm. I didn't like that kind of culture. So engineering said, was. Yeah. Yeah. So which engineering were, did you already declare a major or were you already just thinking? Um, no, I went to University of Florida and at the time, and I think they still do this. They don't admit you by major. They just admit you. And then you take the prerequisites to be admitted to the major. Yeah. Yeah. So this would have been the the maths and the sciences. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, so you took, oh, so you were already taking some of the prereqs a little bit. Yeah. You, I didn't like, gotta... I didn't like, I think it was chemistry maybe. Oh yeah. 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 That's uh that that was a deal breaker for me. I feel like uh, it just had very much the look to your left, look to your right. Those people won't be here at the end of the semester. Oh yeah. I just I don't like that kind of learning environment. Right. Right. Because you're like you're like he's looking at me, so I got I got I got to take him out. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh. So what? So then you so you were sort of like that was your freshman year. You you were thinking you're not necessarily wanting to do the engineering did you have like a was there something else that happened that year that you sort of got curious about um no I mean I that was my first semester and so the classes I had intended to take in the second semester were no longer the classes that I was going to take so mm -hmm. at the time um you basically had to walk around campus and find what classes were still open Mm -hmm. and get people to sign off on your classes <laughs> right and right. so the the basic business courses had a lot of space and so I ended up taking um principles of macro mm. and then after taking that it was super easy so I decided that might be a good major to take yeah yeah you found that class to be pretty pretty easy or pretty interesting um, I mean, the, the professor that taught it is um, kind of a legend. Um, he's retired now, but his name was Dave Denslow, Dr. Dave Denslow. Mm. And uh, he just, he talked super fast and um, he made it interesting. Mm. And I had taken economics in high school and I thought it was enjoyable yeah. in general. So I like the macro class, so I just decided to do econ major. Yeah, 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 because it just was so. Uh, would you have said that you loved economics after that first macro class, or what would you have said if not that? I don't know if I loved it. I just thought it was <laughs> easy, so I decided to take more classes. Yeah, I, I think I. I started to like it more as I got into the field classes. Mm. Um, so I really liked macro and I took a class in, uh, it was, I believe called something like Latin American development. And I ended up writing my senior thesis on something related to commodity exports in Latin America. Mm. Um, and so I really was interested in macro and trade and 
um, growth and all the things I don't do currently. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, you have some early publications that are kind of macroy though. You've got these like exchange rate stuff. Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting. My husband's also an economist. That's where um, I got drawn into those publications. But I've always liked macro. Um, in fact, macro slash um, monetary. So mm -hmm. what ended up happening is um, before I went to Davis, I was working um, in a couple of different industries that were heavily linked with what went on with the U.S. Um, Federal Reserve decision. So I worked in mortgages. And so every time the rates change, people, that business just goes bananas because people need to lock in whatever rate and want to buy houses or, you know, have a harder time buying houses. It's very, it fluctuates a lot with what's going on with the Federal Reserve policy. And then after that, I worked in a securities firm and it's the same thing, you know, when the, when the Fed meets, you know, the markets can go crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's like a really, you know, frontline position to observe kind of the effects of the Federal Reserve. So when I was at Davis, I, I really wanted, I know I, I knew I wanted to do public economics, but I was, my second field, I wanted it to be monetary economics and, mm -hmm. um, the grad chair, grad advisor person was like, you need to probably do two micro courses. Um, so I ended up taking IO instead, yeah. which I also, I loved IO as well. Um, but that's kind of interesting. I have a field in public and I have a field in IO and I guess you could say I write a few things that you could consider public, but I don't think I've written a single IO paper. Yeah, those were my two fields too, IO <laughs> and public. And yeah. econometrics, and I've I uh, uh, have never taken a health course, and I only took one labor course. Uh, but I don't think they even offered health at Davis when I was there. I think they might have started that after I had finished my coursework. Oh, okay, okay. So, so you end up taking these field courses, but you're still kind of like really like in the macro. macro. Yeah, yeah. And so the the couple of papers um, from quite a few years ago now um, on derivative market activity. Some of those were the result of kind of my interest, my institutional knowledge, um, mm. use this daily price data from a handful of countries. Um, and the former institution I was at, Mount Holyoke, we had a consortial arrangement with UMass Amherst and I was able to access the data that we needed through that mm -hmm. arrangement. Mm -hmm. and, my husband didn't have access. So um, that was kind of like a big contribution. I could get access to the data, but also um, you'll probably be upset with me for saying this, but he tried to download this data into Excel and Excel choked on it. So yeah. um, we had to use some real data processing. <laughs> like some real, some real software. Uh, um, which I have some more expertise in it than he did at the time. Right, right. So you end up going to Davis. Was was mm -hmm. was that? Um, so what year was that? That would have been like oh one. I did. I started in September oh one. September oh one. Um, you know, I know that like when we go to graduate school, it's kind of like the invisible hand allocates us to whichever school that we end up going to. But was there a certain reason that you were attracted to Davis? Um. Yeah. So 
I had I had actually done a master's at Michigan State um, mm. prior to so right from graduating undergrad I went to Michigan State and um, to complete the master's there I wrote a like an independent study um, kind of paper and it was on welfare reform mm. and um, I had really wanted to look at some of the targeted uh policy some of the targets of the policy were to um reduce teen fertility mm. and so i was you know really interested in that topic um but by the time i got around to going back to grad school um i feel like hillary hoynes might have taken that space i think she has a paper on that that i might have come across mm. and she was at davis and so when i got admitted there it was pretty easy for me to know where to go. Mm. Wait, so was that your first exposure at Michigan State when you started to be like, um, I'm kind of interested in in these uh, large government programs and fertility? Um, well, I think my interest in in micro probably started there. Um, I, took, I took a labor class and I liked that a lot. Um, I had... Um, my professor there was Jeff Biddle, mm. um, and he does, he does, you know, more micro and labor and a little bit of a history yeah. feel of his work. And, um, I, I don't know. I just, I thought he was insightful and, uh, you know, interesting. Yeah. So, and so you ended up writing, did you, was he your like advice, your thesis advisor? Um, I didn't write a thesis. I just wrote an independent study. Um, I think at the time you had to have uh, some kind of a test, kind of like, kind of like a prelim, but for master's students. Yeah, is what they had. I don't know how they organized their program at the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So, so you had probably heard about Hillary Hoyne, and is that why you were like she's at Davis, and you kind of were like thinking about people that were studying in this area that you had just done an independent study on? Um, I think I wanted to, I wanted to work in that area. Like I wanted to do something that related to sort of this, like welfare reform, fertility, kind of just something related to fertility. I knew that going into grad school, um, mm. HD, when I started in '01 and. I applied pretty broadly um, and Davis was probably the best school I got into. Mm -hmm. And I visited um, another school I was thinking of going to and it just, it was more macro. And I think they didn't, they had really good macro, but they didn't have other fields that were really good. Yeah. And um, I also called and talked to a couple of the people at Davis one of them being Hillary Hoynes. And um, she said something that kind of stuck with me. And she was, you should go to the best school that you got into because it'll give you more doors that will open later. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, sad but true. I I think that, um, I don't know, sad but true. But it, I think there's some truth to that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think it means that you can't do really awesome things. Um, without going to like the top 10 school or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like there's, um, what's, 
you know, there are people that have gone to programs you probably never heard of that now everyone knows who they are. Right. So, I mean, I think, you know, there's always a path um, if you, you know, it's not just your school that matters. Yeah, sure. Um, and I would say like, you know, the top ranked students at Davis are probably better than, I don't want to pick on other schools, but you know, there's right. overlap. Um, yeah, sure. It's like, it's not a, you know, it's not a, <laughs> it's not a straight up and down line. Yeah. In terms of yeah, that. but your cohort at Davis is really good. Jason yeah. Bruno, Alan Brecca, you, Matt Pearson. Uh, I'm trying to Jason take a small Lindo. Did I say Lindo? I said Lindo. Too. Yeah, Jason and Lindo. Um, um, th there was a bunch. Uh, Nick Sanders. Nick Sanders, yeah. 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 That's so they're, really... they're all like, like in the class after me. I'm not sure I would have gotten in in their class, but... <laughs> Well, Matt Pearson told me you guys had this really good public labor combo that really mm -hmm. you learned a lot from. What was that class? So um, the Davis is on the quarter system. And uh, at when I started, I think they just had, not just, but they had public, which was taught by um, Marianne Page, who's amazing. Mm. Um, Hillary Hoynes and um, I think Doug Miller might have been the third one. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. Um, but then what what I realized is they were all very good at teaching in a way that was really an applied micro type of way of teaching public. Yeah. And so even though the focus of um, the material that we covered was more on the public economics questions. Mm -hmm. The type of analysis um, was this kind of causal inference type of analysis mm -hmm. that was applicable in a lot of different areas, um, mm -hmm. namely some of the stuff I do now, which is uh, maybe more in the area of labor, maybe the more the area of health economics. Did it feel different coming from that macro and coming from Michigan State? Did you feel like, because you were probably working working with data, but like, did you get a sense that there was something unusual or different about the way that they, this applied micro approach? So I just, I should say, I mean, and this is maybe giving away my age a bit, but when I was at Michigan State, um, the macro classes, uh, we when we computed like impulse response functions, we inverted matrices by hand. Mm. Um, we weren't really using computerized anything. Mm. Um, maybe once in Gauss or something, we might have done something, but right. it was mainly very analog type of macro. Yeah. Um, we had um, it was like this rational expectations type of time period where that was kind of really big. Mm -hmm. uh, so then by the time I went to Davis, the macro was more a uh, real business cycle macro. Mm -hmm. It seemed like a completely different topic. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't know. It was just different. And Did you like I, it? Did you like that material? I mean, I like macro. I just, I think I was more... I, I think I figured out at the tail end of my time at Michigan State with doing my independent study that what I really was interested in was fertility issues. Mm. And although I am 
like happy to do research in all these other areas, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was interested in monetary and I was interested in this. And I actually, when I was working at at the securities firm, one of the things I did was I followed corporate bonds. And one of the bonds I was assigned was in the telecom industry and they were doing all these auctions for telecom licenses. Yeah, And this was a big area of IO. And I mean, I wrote like my class paper on that um, Mm -hmm. for IO in grad school. And I could have easily gone into IO because I found those topics really interesting as well. Yeah. Um, And what ended up happening and like maybe why ultimately I landed on studying fertility versus one of these other things is that I realized with IO um, that I was, I probably wasn't going to be too interested in theory for theory's sake alone. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to work with data, but to have interesting data with IO, you almost have to have some insider connection with a company or with, you know, it's harder to get a hold of the data Yeah, and with public, but you work with publicly available data. Right. Um, So it was more of a level playing field. Yeah. I but wait, so how did you get, so why fertility? Because oh. you've stuck with that your whole career. What, what was this? Yeah, so I, it's, it's a little bit related to my childhood. Um, so I mentioned like, I grew up on an island and mm. it was a, not a big island. We didn't have a high population. And at the time I lived there, there was one elementary school, one middle school, one junior high and one high school. Everybody who went to public school on the island all went to the same school. Mm-hmm. And it was um, K through third, fourth, fifth, and sixth was the middle school. And then um, seventh, eighth, and ninth was the junior high. And then high school was 10, 11, 12. Mm-hmm. So I remember being in, um, I want to say it was in fifth grade. And I noticed there were girls in my school that were pregnant. Mm. And I really I was wondering why. Mm-hmm. And I think that just sat with me um, for a long time, trying mm. to understand why. And mm-hmm. then later on, when I was in um, eighth grade, my mom had, my parents are still married, right? It's the same relationship, but there were three of us born in the 70s. And then there was a big break. And then my mom had three more children. Mm. My parents had three more children. And that was also kind of related. Why would you choose to have this many additional children? Um, and so uh, it, it kind of, it, it fed into my interest um, for fertility broadly defined. Mm-hmm. Sort of determinants of fertility. Why? why do people have babies when they have babies? Why do they not have them when they don't have, you know? I, just, right. And so I think it, uh, certainly the sixth grade experience, the sixth grade, it was the sixth grade girls that were pregnant, um, you know, kind of looking back, I'm sure that had a lot to do with a lot more than just waking up as a sixth grader and deciding to be pregnant. Right. Um, so it doesn't really fit entirely with a, you know, deterministic model of fertility. Right, 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 right. So I, I I think in retrospect, you know, there was a lot, um, 
a lot more uh, to unpack. Yeah. So that, that's probably where a lot of it started. Yeah. And it's like, you're already an economist. So you're starting to think about policy as opposed to like, if you were, had been majoring in psychology, you might have been interested in fertility and just kind of focused on, well, I don't know. I don't know exactly how they study fertility, but they may not be thinking about, you know, aid for uh, dependent children and things like that. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. When I, when I was trying to figure out what to do for graduate school, when I ended up at Davis, I had this, I don't know, period of time where I was trying on different hats. I almost went to sociology. Oh. I think that would have been a fine match. Like I read um, Emil Durkheim and like, I never took a sociology class as an undergrad, but I kind of got into thinking about what is sociology. When I was an undergrad, I took an, an anthropology, I took a couple anthropology courses. I was almost an anthropology major. Mm -hmm. um, I like that topic as well. So I think it could have gone a lot of different ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So is it a good fit? Is econ, is econ? I think that, fit? I mean, I think being a academic economist is a good fit um, for the moment. I, I feel, so in my, in my, so why do I say that? In my positions I had between grad school and then Davis grad school, um, I, I usually advanced pretty quickly at the companies. I was promoted pretty quickly. I made decent money. And when I left the securities firm, I was kind of on this, should I become a chartered financial analyst or should I go to grad school? Like those, that was my choice um, yeah. set. And I mean, I think ultimately I decided to go to grad school because I felt the career paths, I just kept getting bored. Um, I felt limited in what I could think about in a way um, as, you know, financially unstable <laughs> as it was to go to grad school. It was still, it seemed like long-term, it would be a better fit for me um, because as you can see, you know, my research is not only um, fertility, it, it's, it's a heavy theme, but I've been able to branch out and look at health-related topics. Um, I've delved into things that are more historical in nature as it relates to fertility. Um, I have papers that look at obesity and the air ambulance market. And, you know, it's just things that are completely not fertility at all. Mm -hmm. And I just think if you, if I had been in a position where I'd been in a job that kind of pigeonholed me into one area. I don't think I was, I would be as happy as I am being able to have that flexibility to kind of take on a lot of different uh, questions. Yeah. Are there things you don't like about being an academic economist? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's anything that I really don't like, I usually, I don't tend to focus on the negative. Mm. Um, I mean, I think there's individual people or individual instances that haven't always been so nice. 
Mm -hmm. um, but I just choose not to dwell on those. Mm -hmm. um, I think I get that from my parents, maybe more so from my dad. I just, you can't, you can't dwell on all the negative things. Um, why didn't, you know, I get into that conference? Why didn't, you know, I get into this? Why, why does this person get this? And I don't get, you know, it's just like the, what do they call that? The envy is the thief of joy. Right. Uh, and so I just, I've, I don't, I don't know. Like, I know I'm not the most brilliant person on the planet and I'm not trying to be, I'm just trying to ask some interesting questions, do some research and enjoy life. Yeah. 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 The, uh, the, I used to call it uh Vita envy. I would, uh, and I, and I would just literally, it felt so masochistic. I would just go on the internet and look at probably, you know, I would look, I, I would also look at your Vita. I would look at other people's Vitas and I would just be like, I'm, I suck so bad. I I'm the, I'm the worst, uh, person, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, these stories you just tell yourself, you know, I mean, there's all they, they're, they're not helpful stories to, to, to tell yourself that your, your, uh, value is rooted in any of your accomplishments anyway, but they can be so, uh, brutal, you know, when you're in, you know, tenure track can be pretty bad time, yeah. you yeah. know, in general. And it's so idiosyncratic, um, what happens. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think, I mean, I've seen, I've seen so much more of how decisions are made, um, you know, hiring decisions or, you know, journal decisions, um, you know, just, I don't know, I recently reviewed a paper and and the other reviewer on the paper and I just thought the paper was great. And then at the end, it wasn't accepted at the mm. journal, even though I had two very positive reviews and it was because it wasn't general interest enough. No. It was just like, well, if that's the case, why did you send it to reviewer? You know, yeah, it yeah, right. doesn't square with me. Like why, why do you waste people's time? Right. Right. You know, that's the decision you're going to make at the yeah. end. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't think I don't know if outside of econ people really can completely appreciate what you're talking about right now. How yeah, that's probably the, true. These close calls. I mean, there's an equivalent of it in you know in equilibrium. Everybody, every field has this exact same thing. It might be more aggregate number of events, or you know, like some other thing but in our field it's like these singular you know we have such low output these singular and, and such hierarchical journal structures that have really big sometimes you know like quantifiable benefits and sometimes very difficult to quantify benefits but you definitely they're very salient you know these close calls can really hurt they can or they if you let them they can hurt yeah I agree. I mean, but then that's where, you know, I guess I landed on, I've been super lucky at a lot of turns. Um, mm -hmm. Just, you know, I almost didn't go to Davis. I almost went somewhere else because they offered me a lot more money. 
Um, and that would have been a short-term decision versus a long-term decision. And yeah. I ended up going somewhere that had a lot more risk, but um, I was okay with, um, I don't know. I just felt like I was going to give it a shot and I was going to put my my all into that. And then yeah. if it worked out, it worked out. And if it didn't work out, it didn't work out. But right. I was still lucky that they even admitted me in the first place. Mm. Yeah. Um, they could have just said, I don't think she's good enough for this program. Yeah, right. Um, so, and I think that's that's true with any of these, um, you know, you submit a paper and then, you know, you hope it's going to get published somewhere eventually. And sometimes you're lucky and sometimes you're not. Um, yeah. I've had stuff waiting on decision for more than a year for first decision. Yeah. Yeah. If was... I was experiencing that as an assistant, yeah, I, I don't even know if I would have a job right now. Not uh, in academia. I mean, I feel like I would have a job somewhere because I'm qualified to do lots of different things. Right. Right. Could have easily not ended up getting tenure. Yeah. I was lucky to be at Mount Holyoke when I had my kids because they were very um, very kind to me with regard to parental leave. Mm. And, um, I really thought it wasn't going to work out for yeah. a while. And then I had some senior colleagues that, um, kind of forged a path for it to work out. Mm. Um, and so I don't know, I think, I don't think I would have the academic track record I have if I hadn't had these these little lucky events happen yeah um and I just was fortunate that you know people with tenure um kind of put their foot down yeah um and made sure I had some kind of protection yeah I've heard that called uh there's mentors and there's sponsors yeah you, you need both both and uh, probably at the margin, we need, you know, to reallocate towards more sponsors because yeah. sponsors kind of put their, you know, neck on the line. They incur real costs. Mentors, it's doesn't, you know, it doesn't like cost you. It, it costs you opportunity cost of time mm -hmm. to mentor, but to sponsor is to use scarce relationships and, mm -hmm. and bet on people and all this kind of you know, also, it's, it's all like behind the scenes, kind of like advocate, advocating, mm -hmm. maybe even awkward conversations. Yeah. And sometimes like personal risk, personal like, risk. Yeah. You know, they have some skin in the game they could lose. I, I was at my third year review at Baylor and, you know, I had that, that research agenda on sex work and it was not panning out. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, any department would have let me go you know, to be honest. And, and uh, uh, you would think definitely a religious school like Baylor would. And I remember this gentleman, Joe McKinney, he stood up and, you know, in the middle of a fairly, uh, very uncomfortable conversation between various people in the department about me staying. And he just stood up. He was just this gentleman, very older, you know, I, I'm sure the sex work research did not feel like real economics and or made him feel very comfortable and he just said you know we let scott be here this long i don't see the risk and letting him stay a little longer 
And, uh, you know, he had the respect of the whole department. And I just remember thinking, uh, that was fortuitous, you know, mm -hmm. that could have easily, he could have been sick today, you yeah. know, and not been there like, or, or, or just not been there. There's so many ways that you're, you provide public goods to the department that are not necessarily like service oriented always. They're just like being part of the community. And then that has real payoffs. It, you know, not just for you, per they're all external. I mean, a lot of them are external payoffs because they're for your junior colleagues and stuff. Um, you know, you once have said this comment, I, we've talked about this recently. You, you were talking about an experience with a paper and you said, you said um, uh, that you didn't mind like getting criticized. Um, you just really wanted everybody to keep both hands above the table. Yeah. And uh, so I was wondering, you know, like there's this subreddit on Reddit called explain to me like I'm five, where you can like, oh. ask, you know, like explain me like I'm five. So uh, what would it, what does that mean? And I was wondering if, as you answer this question, you could, you could keep this in mind. What would it look like to have one of the hands under the table or have a fake arm and it looks like both hands are above the table, but really, you know, only one is. What is it? What did you mean by that phrase? So when I when I think of hands above the table research, I just mean that when you read a paper, that the people writing the paper are very transparent with what's being done in the paper. Now I I say that with the lens of an applied microeconomist, where um, you know, usually you're working with a lot of data mm -hmm. and, um, you know, you can do something called P hacking, which is just running every type of analysis under the sun till you get the results that you're looking for right. and then only showing those. Um, I've seen it in papers where in one regression, they, they use this sample. And then on the next page in a different regression, they're using a different sample. And then the next regression, it's a different sample. Right. And not explaining why there's different samples. Sometimes there's a reason why, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then if you're kind of not writing about that in the paper and it's just buried in the number of observations without any explanation, yeah, um, that looks a little suspect. Right. 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 Yeah. So, uh, your dissertation, you, mm -hmm. you, you, you end up writing on a topic that I think has been getting a lot of renewed interest after Roe v. Wade and it was abortion policy and contraception. Was your job market paper, the one that goes into demography? Yeah. Okay. So could you tell, so I'm just kind of curious, um, about the process of searching in graduate school and kind of like landing on that project and what that project was about. So to circle back um, to, you know, one of the areas I was interested in before going to Davis was this welfare reform and thinking about teenage fertility. Um, you know, that was one of the big policy targets of welfare reform was to reduce this unmarried fertility, particularly teen fertility. And um, 
you know, by the time I got around to the point where I'd be writing my dissertation, a lot had been written already in that that area. And so I was, you know, reading more widely to try to identify something that would be a policy that would affect um, fertility. Mm-hmm. And um, I believe I read uh, Golden and Katz's uh, pill paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I just thought more could be done to look at the fertility of, of young women mm-hmm. and changing, you know, contraception access. That was like a big part of their paper. Mm-hmm. They have part of their paper looks at abortion, but mm-hmm. it, the fertility wasn't the focus of that paper. It mm-hmm. was, a, a, you know, not really, you know, directly a big part of the paper. Yeah. In fact, I, it's been a really long time since I wasn't read it. it like labor force participation they, rates or marriage rates. So or they something? were, they were more interested in what happened to the education of women education. Um, and as it relates to the pill and then what happened to occupational choices, mm-hmm. which is um, ultimately, I think why people are interested in what has happened to fertility. Um, Mm -hmm. If you're a labor economist, you're interested, you know, if all these people are making different fertility choices, Mm -hmm. how does that feed into their choice of education, which is linked to their choice of occupation, which is also tightly wound up in their choice of marriage. And, you know, all of that kind of feeds together. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think their paper did, you know, a spectacular first pass at looking at education and occupation. And I no one had done this for the pill before them. Um, and so, and they had that little natural experiment part. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I think, so Martha Bailey and I probably had a similar idea um, to begin with, to look at the fertility side of things in more mm-hmm. detail. And um, we had, each independently went out and collected a wider set of of laws um, Mm. that related to the legal access. Um, And I think she was much more focused on contraception. I was focused on contraception, but also as I was reading through a lot of these um, statutes and legal papers, um, some of the laws that regulated contraception also extended access to abortion once it was legal. And sometimes states had laws that restricted contraception, but made abortion legal. And sometimes it was vice versa. Mm. Um, And so that's what I landed on was kind of trying to understand um, how these things mattered for fertility of young women. You you and Martha are friends. So so this is something that probably isn't wouldn't I don't I hope it's okay to ask this but like I think like a lot of people in economics get this anxiety I don't know you you're so even keeled you know that you probably you're probably gonna tell me you never felt it but like uh I I have had it several times where I feel like I'm in a what I would call a race with someone where Mm -hmm. they have a similar paper and I I was wondering you know when you and Martha since y'all both kind of go out on the market together with a similar paper, what did, what did that feel like? 
So I, just to be clear, I think Martha was a year or two ahead of me on the idea. I just mm. wasn't aware of her idea when I started mine. Mm -hmm. um, and she was on the market. I want to say it was the year before I was on the market and her paper was already, you know, polished. Um, and so for me, it was kind of like, what is it like with Stackelberg? You have like the first mover and the second mover. <laughs> right, right. Was the second mover in that situation. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, for me, it was more, I knew she already had her paper. Her paper was already out there. So it wasn't trying to compete. It was trying to differentiate. Yeah, right, right. And so, um, you know, I, I, that that's all there was with that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, that's one of these things, though, I don't think people outside of being uh, PhD economists, like, uh, or maybe it's in other fields, but like people, you know, I, I don't, I bet like, you know, as an undergraduate, you, you, that you can't even like have like a framework for what it feels like to have this project. And then the quote novelty of it goes away. But for me, like it, it's, it can be really devastating. So I think there's two ways to look at it. One is, you know, you can feel, I don't know, a little bit deflated that somebody else has this idea. Mm -hmm. But for me, because <laughs> I, I have tons of ideas, I just don't have, you know, as you can probably imagine, because you have a lot of ideas as well, there's no way you can pursue every single idea you have. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're working on something and you bookshelf something and you think you'll come back to it. Yeah. And you know, that's not what happened with Martha and I. Um, but when I saw her paper get into QJE, you know, not that I would have gotten what I had into QJE, but I thought like, wow, my idea, like along those lines, like it wasn't a stupid idea. Right. Was right. thinking in the right direction, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, I don't want to pretend like I could, I, I'm not trying to equate myself with Martha. I think she has like she's a different level yeah um but at the same time like it it's happened you know where I have these ideas and I think okay I'll work on that next year right. and then I'll go to a conference and you know I'll see someone doing a spectacular job and I'll say okay well I guess I won't be doing that idea right. anymore. so and I, I don't think I've done you... that a couple of times like where you know I've had stuff even semi well-developed and just seeing people that have kind of taken it a little bit further and done yeah. a little bit better job. And I just, I think I'm more inclined for a lot of things not to compete um, yeah. or, and this has happened in some other work, um, you know, where I might've been more on the first mover team and mm. just been open with other people, like, you know, maybe, you can differentiate from us. Right. We both win. We right. Think it's an right. Important topic. Let's both work on this. Right. We, you know, that's have. so, that is so what I associate with your personality though. You're like, uh, you're, you're, you're cool. You're, you're even, you're steady. You know, you're like a glass half full person. Even the things that my first memory of you at a conference was you like organizing these dinners. I think I've always told you that. I always saw you as like, a person that just brings people together is always just like, you know, as opposed to clickish and try to, you know, put people down. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
you know, it's kind of, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, that, that just seems so consistent with what I think of as your personality is just like, uh, you're just, you, you, you almost, I've, I've seen you, I've seen you be happy for other people more than anything. And, uh, you know, your, your, your self-esteem isn't so wrapped up in, in, uh, in like the Vita. I, I went for a long time. My self-esteem was wrapped up in my Vita and then I had personal tragedies and I was like, well, that was the dumbest thing I ever get. That's completely, uh, you know, not, uh, remotely powerful for difficulties in life it's you know that was a bunch of wasted time to make my self-esteem based on it or uh you know the because the, there's just nothing about uh that stuff that can help you when times get hard you know um yeah, i have to say like i think if you had known me before before davis like a few years before that i was kind of a different person but i went through some stuff um, mm. in my late twenties. And I just feel like there's the person before and the person after. And mm. I think it, I think it really grounded me, um, in a way that I don't like, I care about publishing my work. Totally. I think it's important, but it is not the only thing. And it's certainly not the most important thing for me in my life. Right. Um, and, and things can change too, you know, yeah. when you're, when you're tenure track, you can sort of afford to be like reallocate a little bit and be like, cause I want to live in this town. I going to make it a little more important. And, uh, at the margin, you know, sorry, I interrupted you. No, I was just going to say, I think you, I, I went into grad school having had basically two careers in two different areas, you know, mm -hmm. they were both kind of in the financial industry, but they were completely different. And I just had this feeling like I had a realization working that I had a lot of skills. I could probably get a job making enough money to feed, clothe and house myself. Right. And once you do that, it's all, it's all bonus. Right. Um, right. And I think like just having that mindset, you know, I, I tell this to people like you, you go to a party and, you know, I've been to places where people are wearing like $5,000 sweaters and just mm -hmm. like the money is just oozing off of them. Right. But like, does it matter if your sweater is $5,000 or you got it at a thrift store? I mean, it's, you're the same person. Yeah. It's just extra. Right. right. What what are you getting from that extra money that you've spent on clothing? Mm. Um, so I think I went in with that mindset to grad yeah. school. Mm -hmm. And I figured if it didn't work out, that's okay. I could just go get a job doing something else. Like I right. really and I still feel that today. Like if it doesn't work out, you know, I have tenure at my institution, but hey, if it doesn't work out, I can always go sell umbrellas on the beach or yeah. you know like I have my right my backup plan of whatever yeah. Yeah. so I don't know I just always feel like this is what I'm doing right now and mm. I, mean, I hope it's going to continue to work out but you never know what's around the corner stuff could happen yeah it's so psychologically healthy the way you talk I've been in like you know 15 years of therapy so like <laughs> you talk, you, 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 you talk the way that I aspire to feel. So it's, uh, I think 
you know, it's, I think it's one of these like, you know, genetic lottery. I feel like my parents are both extraordinarily positive people. Mm. Um, I never saw my parents, you know, depressed or mm -hmm. I never saw them give up on anything. Um, they always had resiliency and optimism mm -hmm. and, you know, they had good times. They had bad times. They had ups, they had downs, you know, they had good things happens bad. I mean, they just kind of went through a lot of different stuff. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. They just kind of bounced every time. So I think why, why could they bounce every time? I think it's their mindset Yeah. was just in a place where they were able to refocus on the next thing or the positive or, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, last question, you know, I have this feeling you, you, you're much better than most of us at living in the present and not living in the future and living in the past. So I guess I was going to say, you know, what, what, what these days do you look forward to the most? And you're that you like, you know, wake up and, and you're really, you like the most right now. Well, that's a hard question. I don't know. I just, I wake up and I just kind of live moment to moment. I mean, I honestly, I think my, my family and my, my husband and my kids are my number one. Mm -hmm. um, uh, anything else could go away. Um, but mm -hmm. if I lost my family, I think that would, that would feel like the world had fallen out from beneath me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what I think is my number one. Yeah. Well, um, so, you know, transition a little bit. I, I read this paper recently by Melissa Kearney and Phil Levine about these, uh, shifts in fertility since the great recession. And I noticed that you have a new paper, about that with Lucy Schmidt and uh, um, Casey Buckle about um, big trends in fertility. I was wondering if you could just tell, for the sake of the reader, for the sake of the listener, just kind of like what that, what, what's going on in that study with uh, Casey and, and Lucy? So I think um, that there's been a big decline in U.S. fertility since the early 90s isn't a huge um new piece of information, but I think researchers have been trying to unpackage that for a while. Um, Melissa and Phil in particular have been very active in this area. And, you know, some of my own work has looked at this in general. Um, as far as the, the new paper with Casey Buckles and Lucy Schmidt, um, we, we focused more so on the last, um, say about 20 years and mm -hmm we were able to show um, using kind of a, a different technique than has been used before, um, two different data sets. One data set that had really good information on birth intention hmm. and another data set that had really good information on births. And we used one to estimate uh, the, likely, the likelihood, I guess, that a birth was unintended and we were able to show patterns over time. Um, and one of the neat things is um, we were able to sort of hold constant if the same t 
types of people had given birth in different years, would we have expected the same degree of unintendedness and kind of break down where things might have been coming from? Yeah. And, uh, you know, perhaps not super duper duper surprising to people who really spent a lot of time thinking about birth intention, but we found a lot of the driver of changes in unintendedness that we observed in the last decade or the decade after the Great Recession was driven by younger women and shifts to uh, decreases in unintendedness among unmarried and young women. Mm. Um, so what does this mean? You know, it, it suggests that younger people are maybe better at meeting their fertility intention over this period. And the back part of the paper is really trying to uncover some plausible reasons why. And um, we suggested it has to do with, with a couple of different things, um, maybe some changes in contraception access, maybe some changes in other behaviors. Um, so I don't think we have a single, single reason, um, mm. but there's a number of factors that are involved. Um, as far as one other thing that we saw is that towards the very end of the period, there's a slight uptick in unintendedness. So, mm. um, you know, will it persist? Will it change? Um, I think the world changed a lot. Our study ended in data with, uh, through 2019, I believe. Mm. Right so anything that happened post, you know, 2019, which includes a huge um, change to fertility and many other things um, right. is not addressed in our study. So I think we can best think of this as something that happened post Great Recession. Um, one of the big things that happened to that, that we were able to uncover is that there's a, there's a lot of papers in economics that look at whether fertility moves in tandem with the economy, right? In good mm. times, more babies, pro-cyclical, pro -cyclical, in bad times, fewer babies, counter you know, what, how does fertility work? And a lot of the research says economy is good, people have more babies and vice versa. Um, what we showed is that the Great Recession, you know, initially this is really true. All births were dropping. Mm. Uh, but one thing that we uncovered, which we thought was pretty interesting, is that in the time right after, you know, the economy started to recover, we see, you know, somewhat of a recovery in intended births, births that people intend to have. And here I, I'm kind of playing loose because it's our estimate of likely intended births. Um, they recovered as you would expect in a pro-cyclical manner, um, mm -hmm. but this was not the case uh, with unintended births. They continue to fall oh. well past when births started recovering. So we felt this was a real bifurcation in prior trends. Huh. Is, is that a cohort drop? So, you know, I don't think it's entirely cohort drop because it's pretty widespread, um, mm. but it does appear to be stronger for younger women. So could there be something for um, maybe millennial age and lower possibly? But these are also the cohorts that were exposed 
um, more early to right. reversible contraception and other oh. things like that. So um, I think there's still more work to be done. And um, one of the interesting things uh, that, that I would be interested to see is if these drops that we've been observing, if they're going to persist. Yeah. And, you know, from what, from what we looked at, it seems like maybe some of these drops are, are permanent and mm. not just a timing thing where people are having no babies in their twenties and maybe they're making up for it in their later thirties. It doesn't seem like that's happening. It's not like some change in uh, the life's like where you're having like a, a baby. Yeah. It's like not really like a margin. Yeah. Huh. So I think it's more likely this might be an extensive margin change. And it's got something to do with these big macro shocks. So, I mean, I think that that could be part of it. It's not something that um, we tested directly. Um, we were looking at the timing of the pattern yeah. and it seemed to line up, um, you know, you would expect things would get better as the recession right. uh, we recovered from, but, um, and by get better, I don't know. I mean, I think people who wanted to have kids started having kids again. Right. You know, people who weren't planning, I think is a way to think of it, to have children were better meeting that goal. Now, could the goal have changed? I mean, that's something more difficult yeah. to measure. Are questions about are those kinds of questions in those in those surveys like those kinds of thought questions like planning so and beliefs and some have some have um questions that try to query birth intention yeah. um for example the general social survey has questions on that um i not in the data set we didn't make use of those in the data set we used which was the national survey of family growth uh, you know in the in the popular press like seems like maybe a couple of years ago, I was, I was every other paper oh, article. I, I just, I want to correct myself. I mean, we yeah. didn't make broad use of those questions um, in our measure of intendedness. I think we, we did some analysis that I can't remember off the top of my head at the well, moment. It seemed like a couple of years ago, I was reading about this all the time that we were in a sex depression. It was like this kind of like, uh, uh, I mean, you know, I, I never knew, how serious it was because I wasn't in the data, but there was just these popular articles like Atlantic monthly kind of type articles where they were talking about how uh, sexual behavior was down amongst young, the newer cohorts. And then I, I saw someone sort of say that the evidence for that was kind of weak. And I was just wondering, you know, I mean, if you've got drops in fertility amongst unintended births did y'all yeah, look so at whether or not some of those changes in sexual behavior could be um due to changes in behavior um to be honest we looked at a lot of things and yeah. i'm just trying to remember all of the different things that we ended up looking at i mean is is unintended births a big part of american fertility I mean, I think it is. It's been, um, I guess, I was just reading about this recently, like the history of unintended births in the U.S. Um, 
I want to say they started kind of trying to measure it as far back as the 40s. Mm. Um, and it's been, you know, some part of data sets that have been used, um, you know, fertility related data sets in the US uh, for quite some time. Um, I think it started with the, what are they called? The general fertility surveys, mm. some of the early ones, and then later the NSFG. The NSFG used to only ask fertility related questions of married women. And then they started asking of all women. And then in recent years, they've been asking um, these questions to men as well as women. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, you know, different things over time. How do they ask it? How do you measure an unintended birth? Right. So this is actually a question that you would think might be easy, but it's actually um, has a pretty long history of how how this is made up. Because um, yeah. so, it seems like there's a lot of heterogeneity. A hundred percent. So one of the more common data sets um, that's used to study unintended births currently in the U.S. is something called the National Survey of Family Growth. And uh -huh. um, this data set um, is the one that we really relied on to create our measure of likely unintended birth. Uh -huh. And in this data set, um, they ask questions, you know, directly, you know, was this birth unwanted? Were you unhappy with this birth? Were you, mm. you know, not trying to get pregnant? Was the birth too soon? Um, and then combining, you know, several of these things um, results in a measure of unintendedness. What, what, what's like, what are you, why are you measuring this anyway? Not you, but like, what's the economic relevance of trying so, to get at exactly like the non-intentional birth? So I think, I think in terms of like, you know, I think like an economist, maybe there's other ways to think about this, but I think a common way to think about this in economics is that if you're planning out your your births, it's almost like you're planning what your investments in these child or children will be. Mm -hmm. And you're timing the births, not only for what you're going to think about for these children later on after they're born, but you're also thinking about if I have no children, what am I going to invest in as far as career, right. uh, education, that kind of thing. Right. Um, when would I like to get married, right? Mm -hmm. Is that going to be earlier or later, depending on if I want to have kids, if, if I want to have them, when I want to have them. Right. Um, and then I think with the, with the intention, um, part of the way it's queried in these surveys, some of them, including the NSFG, is they ask, you know, was this, kind of at the time that you were planning to have the child. And then if they respondent says something like, no, it was too soon, mm -hmm. then it's, well, how too soon, right? right. Was, it, was it a year too soon? Yeah. Was it like four years too soon? Like an ever, or even like a, yeah, like an yeah. ever too soon. Right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, 
you can see where, you know, if you, if you have a baby at 19, yeah. you might have planned to have a baby. Mm-hmm. But maybe you were planning to have that baby when you were 29. Yeah. And this is way too soon relative to what you were planning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how the heck do you tech? So how do you guys work with those questions to come up with like yeah. the taxonomy that's are you know, so I mean, say it this way, but number, like the harmful the versus the benign. So we were the first ones to tackle this. Uh-huh. Um, so there was a paper um, by this, I think it, I want to say it was a sociologist, but I might be wrong, but it's from like, I don't know, 2002 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, Puli, I think is the author's name. And they basically kind of decided I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to allocate these to describe intendedness. Right. Intendedness as the case may be. Right. You know, others have kind of revised on that and followed that path. And yeah. that's, that's kind of more or less the path we decided to take in our paper. Right. Um, but I think it's useful to know that, you know, the NSFG, it's just one survey. Yeah. It's only on U.S. births, which mm-hmm. is kind of more my area of expertise mm-hmm. than what we wrote about in that paper. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think it's useful to understand that intendedness is measured differently in different countries. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a questionnaire that these researchers in London came up with. I think it's called something like the lump survey or something. I can't remember the exact name. Yeah. Um, and they basically used, I don't know, I would describe it more of uh, maybe a psychology or other type of model yeah. to try to understand what kind of questions they should be asking. Yeah. And they put it into like a six item uh, format. Yeah. And this questionnaire, it's like each item has sub questions and they're meant to gauge different parts of intendedness. Yeah. And it's like a scaled measure. And so if you're on, you know, I think it's a 12 point scale two points per each item. And then depending on how you answer those questions, right, it's kind of allocated as intended or mm. not intended, right? But it's it's different because you have to administer this questionnaire. Um, mm. so you can't really always apply it to existing surveys from the 70s. It's more for contemporaneous um, mm. work since they developed this. But that's been used... Um, in all over the world in different countries. So, I mean, there's more than one way to do this. So yeah, there's, yeah. Other, there's another set of researchers that have taken data that you can find kind of in the, I don't know, the the world bank type data, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly where they got their, their actual numbers from, but they're using some Bayesian technique to try to discern pregnancy intention with the data that's available across like 195 countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there's definitely not only one way to measure it. Yeah. Uh, and I think maybe one of the biggest things I think with trying to think about intendedness and trying to measure it is thinking about when these questions are asked, uh-huh. uh, whether they be survey or whether you know, these existing kind of cross-sectional surveys that we rely on a lot in the U.S., or if they're surveys that are 
you know, questionnaires that are administered. Um, a lot of this information is more of a retrospective nature. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's hard to capture people before they become pregnant, asking these questions about intention and then observing them after they've been pregnant. Um, they do have a couple of these type of um, questions in the NLS, the longitudinal panels in the US. Um, and some researchers have used those panels, um, but it only allows you to look at a narrow set of cohorts. So you're not really able to gauge kind of big trends over time because you're kind of limited with a panel in looking at the cohorts that are in that panel. Mm. So that's, I don't know, there's lots of- Yeah, that's, that's really, uh, I'm surprised I haven't even crossed my mind before because I was just thinking, you know, two of our children were unintended. Uh, they were like, but they were more like in the, in the inner temporal you know, use like econ jargon and the inner temporal decision wasn't too off. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's just like at that exact moment, you know, that wasn't really the plan, but I think my wife and I had a lot of flex on that, that it wasn't like ever sort of like a, a there wasn't, we weren't stunned or anything, mm -hmm. but, but I could imagine that there's like a continuum where you get very stunned and upset and ex extremely distraught and yeah. that, and that's asymmetric for the partners and they may not even be, you know, they may not even be partners and things like that. But, um, it's like, it seems like to measure it, you've got to start with some, basic conceptual framework about why should I care about an unintentional birth? Oh yeah. So I Cause it's like, that. it's like, you've got to go ahead and say some of these are costly or some of these are not good or yeah. there's like some kind of normative yeah. thing you've got to just start with. I, I started out thinking, you know, like if you're an individual utility maximizer, like thinking about your own utility in your family investments in your children, that kind of thing. Um, the other side of this is maybe thinking about it from a societal standpoint. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it, it's tricky and I don't think maybe the math is as clean, mm -hmm. um, but if you think about um, people that might have children sooner than they wanted, and if by sooner than they wanted, if it's related to some educational investment or career decisions that they're making, maybe they're not quite at the, you know, lifetime earnings trajectory they want to be at. Right. They're maybe don't end up getting the degree they thought they were going to get. Yeah. And how does that translate into the public finance? scenario right maybe those kids are more costly it's the cost work. from society's standpoint it, it seems like there's like the only way you can justify the the questions is like somehow you've got to say these are on net negative 
Yeah, it's I mean, weird to talk that way. Well, I don't, I don't know that that's entirely true. I mean, I think it's like just academically, I think it's an interesting question to understand if people have changes in their intended births over time. Yeah. Right. I think that's, you know, just if what you're planning is closer to what you're achieving, I think that that's an interesting kind of academic question on its own. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the tricky part is with the costs and benefits, um, the calculations are more difficult. I will say if you, if you don't intend to get pregnant, let's take it to the extreme and say, you don't even know you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. You don't take out any prenatal care. You don't modify any health behaviors during pregnancy. Yeah. Um, this could lead to, you know, a, a less desirable infant health outcome. Right. Um, right. So, you know, I'm not saying that happens with every unintended birth, yeah. but I'm saying perhaps it's more common. Yeah. Um, and then if, if that persists, um, throughout that person's life course, I mean, that could be pretty expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It's always so funny in the way that like the, the public policy questions, they're like so different than the way that I feel like I have to live myself, you know, like I, we, we've had in our family, a lot of things happen that were like, you know, just really bad. They, I'm not even, no, not even say they're bad. They just were like lotteries mm -hmm. that, were, that were won and they were definitely not, uh, they weren't part of the plan, you know? And, and so so much of the work that, and they were very costly, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, in terms of the, the cost to the family, uh, you know, the ending of relationships and all kinds of stuff. And yeah. so, um, but it's like all the work that I've had to do is more like acceptance and then you know, how can I move on and converting these things? It's really had to change my whole philosophy of living less yeah. economic, really less, less thinking in terms of costs and benefits, just more like, I don't know, but I'm not a woman and I mean, I am a father, but like, it's just weird. I can't imagine a public policy conversation where I would have said, we need to, well, actually I can't imagine a public policy conversation where we talk about mental illness or something and talk about the impact it has on caregivers, but like the, it's still sort of odd to me to just like not talk about how much of life is just very difficult. You yeah. know, so much of life is just so hard and, you know, moving all these levers around so that nobody experiences it. It just seems kind of futile a little bit, like, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, it. I mean, I think I, you know, just kind of circling back to, to birth intention and so forth. Um, I mean, 
you know, one way to look at this is that it, it costs more in public money to have children that are, let's not even, you know, call like unwanted or anything like that, but missed times. Like what if right. this baby happens, you know, three or four years too early? Um, maybe that's more likely to be a Medicaid funded birth. Right. Which is funded by public dollars instead of private dollars. Yeah. Um, if you look at, I don't know, 15 years ago, uh, half the births practically in the U.S. were Medicaid funded. Half? What are they now? Close to 42%. Huh. So, you know, and I haven't, I haven't seen any like research on that to try to identify where that cut came from. I, it, it's kind of strange in some sense because the ACA expanded right. Medicaid. Expanded it. But a lot of pregnant women were already eligible. Yeah. So I'm not sure that that margin would have really expanded Medicaid much for that group. Yeah. To have such a decline, um, you know, goes right along with, with our finding that there's been this real shift in the fraction of births that are intended versus unintended. Right, 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 right. So if you think. Yeah. And if you're watching a decline are, in the, if you're watching a decline in the unintended and you think that might be selecting on income, then even with an expansion of ACA, it might be that that compositional change might still mean it's like not necessarily bringing in more births. What it, but what do people find? What are people finding on ACA expansion? Um, so with regard to- To births and uh, yeah, like just ACA, is it having any effect on births at all? I don't know. I don't so I mean, I'm I think I'm a, I, I don't remember all of the literature on the ACA off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, but from what I do remember, it does, you know, one of the big parts of the ACA was making contraception more accessible. Uh-huh. Um, so to the extent that that happened, you know, I, I would think that was decreasing. The mm. And I'm pretty sure I've read a paper and I'm sorry if whoever wrote that is listening to conversation. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah, but I, didn't, I put you on the spot asking you to talk about uh, a uh, paper you that I don't tell you the name of and didn't tell you to read. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it's definitely, I mean, I've read something along those lines. I just, I can't recollect the exact details, um, yeah. but I know people have looked at that and link the contraception. Right. Like the changes in fertility, but the magnitude, I don't remember. Yeah. 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 Well, one, I, more thing, the, one more thing that I, I want to let you go. Um, you've written a bunch on broadband. And fertility, and I always thought that was really interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about that that work that you did on that? You've written so, um, that show. work is with Chris um, Herbst, uh, uh, Arizona State, uh -huh. and um, we just had this idea that you know having access to more information might influence fertility. Yeah, um, and that's basically more or less what we found. Um, I don't recall the exact number, but I don't. I don't feel like it was a particularly large part of the explanation for the drop in fertility that we see over the period we looked at, yeah. uh, which was uh, the big 
the big change in broadband access when we go from, you know, what would be considered an analog world to a digital world. Yeah. Um, you know, when you go from the dial-up modem to having high-speed internet. Yeah. Rolled out rather quickly for most people in the U.S. from 1999 to about 2003. Mm -hmm. um, so we're looking at changes in fertility kind of midway through the the decline that we've seen that I, I feel started around the early 90s. Mm. Um, and we find, you know, it explains a small-ish fraction of the decline. Over What's that the mechanism? Period. Is it learning online about so, uh, you know, or something? It, the data that we use, we couldn't really nail down mechanisms 100%, yeah. um, but it seemed like what we what we looked at, it didn't seem like, we didn't see, for example, um, I want to say we didn't find big changes in maybe rates of STD or something mm. like that. So we're thinking, you know, it had maybe something more to do with information or mm -hmm. that's I think what right. we've done. Right. Um, huh. Had you seen in the literature people suggesting this kind of thing or was that something that you and Chris just kind of were talking and thought about it? So there were um, papers that um, had looked at other things related to broadband um, yeah. related to the labor force and um, one paper in particular looked at marriage markets. Uh-huh. Um, and so we decided to look more at the teen fertility side of things. Yeah. And, you know, to some extent, I think this, you know, is a maybe a distant cousin of these um, MTV right. fertility papers. Right, right. Um, so, I mean, that, that was a different uh, huh. research question, but... Um, do, you, do you think you're going to keep working on this topic for a long time? Could you imagine it's just like, it's not something that you get tired of. You just, it's just, in, I mean, even that conversation, we just, I'm going to be preoccupied in my head. The rest oh, of the, about day. the, measuring that, the measurement thing. I just like, even that just seems like. That's something I'm working on right now. You are about that. Yeah. Just more um, like a book chapter on, on, on it's really deep. Life. Yeah. I mean, it's not even like the, a major part of the chapter, but it's something I mean, we definitely thought about in, in the paper with Casey and Lucy, Yeah. Um, but I've just been thinking about it more with, with this book chapter we've been working on, um, with Christine and I, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you but could see yourself working on this for a long time. Unintendedness, fertility, trends Fertil fertility. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I even have, um, I have another paper that is looking backwards in time and looking at the first demographic transition wow. in the U.S. and looking at access to markets and what does that mean for, you know, what, what do we see with those patterns, I guess, is just a quick way to describe that. Um, it's related in some sense to occupational shifting. So Right, right. Um, yeah. If it's time for another book on the economics of fertility, you could be the one to write it. We'll see. <laughs> Let's see about that. All right. Well, Mel, it's so nice to have you on the podcast. It's so nice to see you. Yeah. Um, it's always nice to see you. Yeah. Likewise. Okay. All right. Well, I'll talk right. to you later. Okay. Take care. Gotta see us soon.